we going to get this thing started? Are we going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it. You know why we're going to do it? Because this, 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 The human body is incredible, and when we push ourselves to the limits, to the extremes, we question what's possible. I'm Dr. Jess Mason. And I'm Dr. Mel Herbert, but where is Dave? Dave decided that in honor of this episode, he was going to run a marathon while doing the show. Dave, are you there? Hey guys, I am running right now. Well, more of a jog, I guess. I was thinking what better way to talk about running than to actually run while talking about running. So I'm attempting to run my own personal marathon here. And I don't know if it was a good idea yet. Have you ever run a marathon before? Uh, well, the closest I've come to a marathon is watching the Twilight Zone marathons. Well, Dave, as you explore your own limits with running, we are going to explore the limits of extreme running. Okay, yeah, well... I'll tell you, it's feeling pretty extreme right now for me. So in this episode, we're going to talk about some of the stories and the characters responsible for some of the most famous and extreme running records. We'll also explore the question, just how far and how fast can a human being go? What's the theoretical possibility here? And more importantly than all this, how fast could you go? How fast could I go? Are these people superhuman? Or can we train to be just like them? And why does anyone even want to do this? In 1954, Roger Bannister achieved what many had believed to be impossible. To run a mile in under four minutes. The best minds of their time thought that running that fast would simply kill you. But on May 6th, 1954, the soon-to-be Dr. Bannister prove them wrong. Up to the finishing line. Time, three minutes, 59.4 seconds. Shattering the four-minute mile, the Everest of athletic achievement. But the first of our stories is not about Roger Bannister. It's about what happened 23 days later, on May 29th, 1954. It's a grey day in Birmingham, in the West Midlands of England, a city sitting quietly in the bottom third of the United Kingdom. The archives of the monthly weather report of the Meteorological Office tell us the temperature was mainly dull and wet. But this is England, so what do you expect? It is the date of the Midland Women's AAA Nationals. It is essentially the English National Championships for women. It's 1954, and Doris Day has the number one song. Winston Churchill is once again Prime Minister of England, as he had been during the war years that ended just nine years before. But none of this was on the mind of one perky, skinny, 21-year-old chemist by the name of Dianne Leather. She stood at the start line, going through her routine. In her mind, she saw herself doing something that no woman had ever done before. Running a mile in under five minutes. She must have been confident because just days before, she had run the distance in five minutes and 0.2 seconds. And as the gun sounded, she took off. The details of that race are hard to reconstruct. You see, unlike Roger Bannister's race, we have no footage. YouTube and smartphones are 50 years in the future. And while Ms. Leather was excited knowing she was on the brink of history, history seems to have forgotten her. And so she ran. She ran for the joy of it, for the excitement of it. And for 4 minutes and 59.6 seconds, 
she ran herself right into history. Just 23 days after a man had broken the four-minute mile, a woman had broken the five-minute mile, a feat that was even more remarkable because so few people really cared. When Roger Bannister was preparing to set the record, he knew it would be world news, that it would be heralded as one of sport's greatest achievements. But for Dianne Leather at the time, it wouldn't even be recognised as a record. Because even in the Olympics, women couldn't run the mile. Even at the 1960 Olympics, the longest official distance that women could compete in was just 800 metres. Women's bodies were considered too fragile to run more than this. Dianne Leather is now 82 years old, still kicking, and remembers events this way. It was very exciting, that's all I know. Well, I've been going for it, and I got close to it a few times, so it was just going to happen, I think. I mean, it's a barrier waiting to be broken, both by the men and the women. She would go on to break the five-minute mile many more times. At the time she retired, she would have a personal best of four minutes, 45 seconds. Remember, too, that all records are ethereal. They're made to be broken. This world record would remain untouched for seven years. But it wasn't until 1967 that the IAAF started to recognise women's records at this distance. Today, the men's one-mile record stands at an amazing 3 minutes, 43 seconds. A remarkable 18 seconds faster than Roger Bannister's four-minute mile. The time, the world record, 344.39. They race to the finish line. Hickamel Garouge is going to hang on. He's got a world record, 343.12. As a matter of fact, The women's record stands at 4 minutes 12 seconds, an incredible 48 seconds faster than Dianne Leather's 5-minute mile. That record is held by the remarkable Russian athlete Sletvana Mustakova. It was run in Zurich in 1996. We found some audio of that race. It's in German. But thankfully, we also found a niece that could interpret it for us. Okay, so he starts off by saying that she's on the world record pace, 3 minutes and 56 seconds on the last stretch of the mile. Oh dear. She crosses the finish line and her new time is 4 minutes, 12 seconds, 57. 4 minutes, 12 seconds, 57 is the new world record time. <laughs> Repeats the time again, says her name, says world record. So, how fast can we run? What's the limit? Dave, how far have you run? I'm only down the block. This is killing me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a stud. He's an athlete. Yeah, I'm, a be- I'm in beast mode. <laughs> Runners have gotten faster and faster over the years. But the reason why they're getting faster might surprise you. I'm David Epstein. I'm the author of The Sports Gene. And I'm a science writer and investigative reporter at ProPublica. The great example is Sir Roger Bannister running the first sub four minute mile. He said, you know, journalists would write that, well, you can't run under four minutes in the mile. You're, you know, your kneecaps will fall off or whatever. And he said, to me, four flat point zero one and 359.9 are the exact same thing from a scientific point of view. There's no difference. But you could see other runners from other countries getting up to this four minute barrier and then just getting stuck. 
right? Get stopping there. And once Sir Roger broke through, there was a flood of sub four minute miles after that. And so I think part of it is it gives people the confidence to go out a little faster than they would have otherwise. They have this very concrete thing to chase. But also we now know that our brain is involved in basically holding back a lot of our physical capacity because it doesn't care as much if we win the race more so that we don't hurt ourselves. And so it holds us back way before our actual capacity. And I think when we see somebody break through a barrier, it sort of helps us mentally liberate some more of that physical capacity. Whew, feels like my kneecaps are going to fall off right now. <laughs> okay, but I'm curious. Why does it seem like humans are continuing to break records over and over again? I mean, are we getting faster? Yeah, so clearly better training methods are a factor, but in many cases, if we look sort of at the most easily quantifiable records, say like things like sprinting and swimming, that we can really track really easily, there was this period sort of from mid-20th century to late 20th century where records were being broken all the time, and then it really slowed down and, and basically looked like it hit an asymptote and, and stopped moving forward in many cases, except when there was technological innovation like changing of a track surface and running or the single biggest drop ever in swimming. I mean, the, the, all the large record drops in swimming come from things like the invention of the flip turn or gutters on the side of the pool that allow the water to splash off so it doesn't create turbulence impeding the swimmers. And so now, instead of seeing this steady progression of record breaking, we see these kind of inching down or staying flat, and then these more sudden dips when there's a technological innovation. Uh, so particularly with sprinting, is there a theoretical limit on how fast a person can go? The current 100-meter record is 9.58 seconds by Usain Bolt in Berlin in 2009. Bolt, Gay, Powell, 4, 5, and 6. They're away. Terrific start by Daniel Bailey. Usain Bolt, though, getting into his running. Here he comes. Usain Bolt, challenged by Tyson Gay. Usain Bolt, two clear meters. Tyson Gay in second place. And in third place, the Suffer Power. 9.58! Smashing the world record! Unbelievable! In the 100 meters, I think it's pretty clear now from very recent work that speed is limited by the contraction speed of muscle fibers. And it looks like based on that, if you could try to model that with the best currently available track surfaces, I think the, the limit is going to be around in the mid 9.4 range. The limiting factor, like people think that elite sprinters move their legs faster than you do. It's not true. Your grandmother and Usain Bolt swing their legs at basically the same rate when they're going as fast as they can. Maybe not your grandmother. My <laughs> gra <laughs> what? Um, but yeah, but with the difference is that the elite sprinters in about a tenth of a second or less put five times their body weight worth of force into the ground as quickly as possible, whereas your grandmother puts far, far less force into the ground. But the repositioning of limbs between strides turns out to account for no, like the same for high school sprinters as for pro sprinters. It's all about how much force you put into the ground and how quickly. And I think it's, it looks like it's in the mid-9.4s is about the theoretical limit. That said, people are starting to come up with shoes that have sort of spring-like contraptions that may or may not be legal. The track surfaces may continue to change, but we're, we're inching down now. Uh, what factors in running or athletes are genetic and what are trainable? Because I'll tell you right now, I'm feeling more genetically programmed to sit than run. Unless, of course, there was some sort of external motivator like a Velociraptor or T-Rex chasing me. Must go faster. There's a lot of science behind running. There's physiology, there's genetics, there's training, and of course, there's that unmeasurable, most mysterious component, the human mind. On a more molecular biology level, there are a couple of different 
tests that we study in athletes of all ages. That's Dr. Matt Baird, an emergency medicine and sports medicine physician in Greenville, South Carolina. Two main biomechanical measurable factors that are very important with how we tolerate exercise and how successful we can be as an athlete. And that uh, refers to VO2 max and lactate threshold. The VO2 max refers to our maximum oxygen utilization. It's essentially determined by genetics. So that basically tells us how efficient we are with the use of oxygen. So VO2 max has to do with how much oxygen from the environment your body can use. And that has a lot to do with genetics. But you can improve with training. Yeah, I don't think there's enough oxygen in the city of Cleveland right now for me. Well, Dave, there's another important factor in exercise physiology that you do have more control over than your genes. Oh, thank God. Tell me. Well, there is a highly trainable component of our biochemistry, and that is what we refer to as the lactate threshold. So that basically determines how much exercise you can tolerate. And lactic acid is an acid that builds up with muscle use and muscle damage. And if it gets to a high enough level, it's going to shut us down. High level of lactate gives us that burning feeling. Lots of lactate, and you just have to stop. It hurts. The lactate threshold is basically the point at which the lactic acid is accumulating in your body faster than you can get rid of it. Dave, are you feeling the burn yet? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, running is so much fun. <laughs> I'm loving it. There are athletes who have rapid clearance of lactic acid, and that allows them to exercise for prolonged periods of time since they don't feel the burn. And I'd like to introduce you to one of those athletes right now. Okay. You know, I honestly believe that what I do is something anyone can do with enough training. So that's Dean Carnassus, also known as the Ultra Marathon Man. If you're a long-distance runner, then he's a household name. That being said, uh, it's kind of naive to say anyone can do that with enough training because unless you're really passionate and you love what I'm doing, you're just not going to have the discipline and the motivation to train. Dean's accomplishments as a runner are numerous, but here are some in particular that are simply amazing. He ran 50 marathons in 50 consecutive days in each of the 50 United States. He ran a marathon to the South Pole. The temperature was a pleasant minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit. That's negative 25 degrees Celsius. Jeez. He ran a 200 mile relay race. The catch? He was the only team member. He ran from Disneyland in Anaheim, California to New York City in 75 days. He holds the record for the longest run without sleeping, which was 350 miles and took him four days and three nights. He has taken the limits of being human and pushed them to the edge. How is this possible? How do our minds and our bodies allow us to do this? For a runner, Dean was actually late to the race? I used to love running when I was a kid. So my earliest childhood recollections were running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. And I ran competitively as a freshman in high school in cross country. I actually ran a marathon when I was 14 and then literally stopped running. And I don't mean that figuratively. I mean, literally at 14 years of age, I hung up my running shoes and said, that's it. I've had enough with running. And uh, I found myself then on my 30th birthday in a nightclub in a bar in San Francisco doing what we do on our 30th birthday. I was you know, celebrating it with my mates and you know, we were having a couple of drinks. And 11 o'clock at night, I, I said, I'm, I'm leaving. And they said, hold it. <laughs> it's 11 o'clock at night. It's your 30th birthday. Let's have another round of tequila. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to run 30 miles tonight to celebrate my 30th birthday. 
And they looked at me and they said, that's funny, you're not a runner, you're drunk. And I said, yeah, I am, I'm, I'm drunk, you're right, but I'm still going to do it. And I walked out of a bar in San Francisco and started running south. And I knew where the 30-mile mark was because it was part of my commute. So I just said, okay, I'm going to run to Half Moon Bay right now. And I ran straight through the night. It, it took me about, it took me over seven hours to cover 30 miles, but um, I didn't sleep. I just kind of ran and shuffled and and that, uh, that evening changed the course of my life forever. That day, for no particular reason, I decided to go for a little run. But why? Why did Dean suddenly decide to become a runner overnight? You know, I, I kind of followed the prescription for happiness that we're kind of told here in, in the U.S. and in the West. And that is, you, you know, you graduate from high school, you, you go to college, you get good grades in college, you know, you go to business school, which I did. Yeah, you know, and you go to graduate school, which I did, and then you land a good job, and you get a good paycheck, and you buy a lot of stuff, and that'll bring you happiness. And I kind of had done these things fairly early on in my life, and I wasn't happy. I was kind of miserable. And I was so comfortable, I, there was no struggle in my life. And I thought, you know, tonight I want something intense. I really want to challenge myself in a way that I haven't been challenged in years and I just thought, you know, I used to love to run. I remember how tough it was to run. And I thought, if I can run 30 miles, that will be a real good challenge. Dean started training and running marathons again, which raises the question, what happens to us physiologically when we start to train? Let's take two minutes to talk about exercise physiology. And I promise, uh, this won't hurt a bit. Two minutes? <laughs> Come on, Dave, you're going to get through this. Uh. I got it. I got it. You doing okay, Dave? I'm feeling my uh, second, third wind right now. <laughs> when it comes down to it, exercise is muscle use, right? That's Matt Bed again. So we're using our muscles. That requires quite a bit of metabolic changes if you're going from not using your muscles to using your muscles. So muscles are contractile organs, and they require oxygen and something we call ATP to contract. And it's recycling and recreating ATP, basically, that allows us to exercise for any prolonged period of time. Hey, Dave. Yeah. Do you remember from science class how the currency of energy in your body is called ATP? Uh, no, but I'm guessing I may be genetically deficient in that one, too. Well, ATP is made one of two waves. The preferred way requires oxygen, and it's called aerobic respiration. But what if, like Dave, you're exercising too vigorously and your oxygen supplies get stretched real thin? Yeah, then you stop and take a breather, right? Well, then your body goes into its backup mode, which is anaerobic respiration. Think of turning the generator on if your power goes out. It works, but it's only temporary. And the byproduct of anaerobic respiration is lactic acid. And when lactic acid builds up, it burns. So when you get off the couch and start moving and start exercising, you're using those muscles more. They're requiring more oxygen, which requires more of your cardiopulmonary system. Your blood volume starts to increase. And as you have more blood to pump, your heart gets bigger and has to pump harder. Uh, hold on, well, hold on, wait a second. Wait a second. How do you fit more blood into your body? This sounds like a, like a riddle. How can I pour three quarts of liquid 
into a one-quart container. Come on. Right, but think of your one-quart container more like a water balloon. It can expand and contract. Your blood vessels are like that too, and they can also get better at bringing the blood to the areas that need it the most, like your muscles. And your muscles change over time as well. With exercise, there's minor damage to the muscles, but each time they repair themselves, they grow a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. It takes time, but each time you exercise, if you get enough rest and food and water, you do get stronger, Dave. Oh, that, feels, that sounds good. A little rest and some food and some water. Your pillow talk. And guess what else, Dave? What? Exercise also works on your brain. Mild to moderate exercise can improve your mental well-being and decrease anxiety and depression. It can create a sense of euphoria. What chemicals cause those? Well, this sense of euphoria can increase chemicals in your body that are similar to opioids and cannabinoids, which almost mimics the high that people get from drugs, but in a healthy and natural way. That's what's called a runner's high. I'm not feeling that. <laughs> He's gonna die. Yeah, well, you know, Jess, I must not be making these chemicals because right now, I'm not feeling like a winner. I'm feeling like mediocre marathon man. Well, Dave, you'll be happy to know that exercise is also protective against things like strokes and heart disease and diabetes, and maybe even some cancers. It changes your body and it changes your mind. Okay, well, how about we get back to our real ultra marathon man? Yeah, Dean, my hero. This is for you, Dean. <laughs> hey, yeah, Dean sounds really amazing, but Jess, you know me. I can appreciate accomplishments, but I'm more interested in hearing the stories of how people failed. So did you ask him about any failures that he overcame? You know, before he became ultra marathon man? Because I could really use some inspiration right now. Yes, I did. I asked him about his first experience running the Badwater Ultra Marathon. This race is 135 miles. And it's not just any old 135 miles. Um, Badwater is the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere. So it's below sea level. It's over 200 feet below sea level. And 135 miles from there is uh, Mount Whitney, the Whitney Portal. And Mount Whitney is the highest um, peak in the contiguous U.S. So the idea is to run from the lowest point to the highest point. And right in the middle of the two is this thing called Death Valley. And they hold the race in summer where it tends to get a little bit warm out in Death Valley in the middle of summer. The temperature was over 130 degrees. And I had gotten severely dehydrated and I'd really thrown my electrolytes out of balance. My crew vehicle actually had broken down, so I had no crew to support me. And I'd been running for about 17 or 18 hours. And it was the middle of the night. And I'll never forget this. It was a you know, very dark two-lane highway. And um, I'm running along, and I see across the side of the road uh, this old minor 49er coming at toward me. And I mean, he was this, you know, a, a, a guy, he had overalls on, he had a big gray beard. He was very, very clear to me and very visual. And he came walking over to me across the road, and he, I could see he was holding a gold pan. And he held out this gold pan to me, and he said, Water, water, I need water. And I looked at him, and I had a little bit of, of water still in my handheld water bottle, and I kind of aspirated it in his gold pan to give him some water, and I heard the water sizzling on the ground. And I reached out my hand to touch him, and my arm went right through him, and I realized it was, it was a hallucination. And then I saw these big dinosaurs off in the desert bouncing along, and I thought, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. And, and then the next thing I know, I woke up in this air-conditioned hotel room, and I'm looking up at my crew, and I'm in a bed, 
And I said, hold it, what, you know, what's going on? Where am I? I thought they were a hallucination as well. And they said, no, Dean, we were, we were so concerned. We were driving around all night looking for you, and we saw you passed out on the side of the road. We got a hotel room, and you've been asleep in here uh, for eight hours with the, with the air conditioning cranked on. I said, hold it, but I, I wasn't finished. I, I wasn't done with the race. And they said, oh, Dean, you were very done. You were very, very finished. So I didn't succeed. I, I passed out on the side of the road at mile 78. Let me just insert here that this sounds scary and dangerous. It sounds like Dean had heat exhaustion, dehydration, and probably had severe electrolyte disturbances. This could have ended much more tragically, but fortunately, Dean recovered. Not only did he recover, but he would not let it stop him. Dean returned to the marathon, and he won it. You know, I, I failed. I've got some unfinished business. I've got to go back out there and complete this race. And I did. I went back out there and finished the next year and yeah, have gone on to, um, I don't even say win the race. I say I survived the fastest because I think it's more about survival than about running and racing when you're out in those kind of conditions. But I have, I have won the race and I've now completed it uh, 10 times. What does Dean's typical day look like? What is a day in the life of an ultra marathon runner? I like to get up early. So get up, you know, when I say early, you know, 3.30, 4 in the morning. And I like to start the day by running. I like to run somewhere close to a marathon. So, you know, 25, 26 miles. Well, he does, he does what I'm doing. Well, essentially what I'm trying to do every morning. And I like to do this on trails. You know, this, this usually takes three and a half or four hours. I'll come home. Then, you know, in the afternoon, I like to go for, uh, if I can, a, a shorter and a faster run. And throughout the day, I cross-train quite a bit. Um, I have my whole office set up at standing level, and I'm constantly, you know, pacing back and forth. I've got a pull-up bar right next to me here and a sit-up mat, and I cycle through sort of this kind of high-intensity routine. It takes about 15 minutes to go through it all, and I do maybe four or five, sometimes six of those throughout the day. Hey, Mel. You know, it's not every day that we get to speak with an extreme athlete. And when your sport is running for days, it brings up some questions about, well, how that works. Of course it does. Like, how do you eat? What do you eat? And how do you go pee and poopy? (laughs) Right. And we're doctors, so we're pretty comfortable asking these personal questions. You, You eat on the fly, if you will. So you pretty much are eating as you're running. It's different when you're running for an hour during a, you know, a 10K or something versus running for three days nonstop. <laughs> so, you know, your metabolism gets kicked into high gear and you, it, you're just amazed at how much food you can eat and still not feel full. So you, you eat as you run and uh, you, you try to keep running as, as much as you can. You try to stop or slow for nothing. And the bathroom? Where does Dean go to the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> If you've got to go number one, if you will, there's probably some sort of you know medical term for that that you guys use. Urination or urinating. Pee or pee-pee or whizzing. If you've got to go pee, there's a technique you use. It's almost like you, you do this modified waddle, kind of like a, a penguin, if you will. And you kind of lift up your shorts and kind of you know point the little guy on the side of the road or on the, on the trail, and you just waddle along as you're going. And, you know, I'm I'm expert at this. I get none on my shoes whatsoever. <laughs> but if you have to go number two, if you will. Defecation. Poopy or poo. Big stinky. Then, then you stop. I mean, that's kind of the one time you stop. To run for that long seems to many of us just impossible. 
Right, Dave? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, are you okay, Dave? I'm really worried about you. Can you define okay? Well, I'm an ER doctor, so if you're talking and breathing, you're pretty okay. Okay, good. I'm, I'm going to keep going. And we've touched on some of the genetic advantages that some athletes have. Um, I have been kind of analyzed scientifically as, as to you know, how I'm able to you know, keep running these long distances without breaking down. And you know, there's a couple things that I think that are unique to me, but not necessarily unique to any human. And that is, um, one, I've got pretty good biomechanics. So I've had my foot strike kind of analyzed in many different ways. And you know, what, what they found is that my foot kind of lands as a runner's foot ideally should. And kind of my gait and everything is, is pretty much perfectly aligned. So I'm not putting a lot of ex, you know, excess mechanical stress on my bones and joints. And you know, a, lot, a lot of that has to do with heredity. Um, you know, the other thing they've noticed with me is that I don't accumulate a lot of lactic acid when I run. But writing off Dean's accomplishments as genetic makes him seem unachievable. Dean is constantly pushing himself. And where does all this discipline come from? Yeah. Where? You know, I use this technique that's just called projection, and it's kind of a psychological tool that I use to get me out the door, and that's really to project how great I'm going to feel and how accomplished I'm going to feel after I work out. Oftentimes, the hardest thing is just to get out the door, and if you can get out the door and if you can start moving, it kind of builds on itself. So any sort of technique or tool you can use just to get you out the door I think that's something that is really invaluable. And I think that a lot of you know, people that want to start working out or, or struggle to work out, I think they need to look at it in, the, in those terms that, you know, what am I going to do to get myself out the door? Just, just do that. Just get out the door. And usually it's self-fulfilling at that point. And Dean's next challenge? Well, he's planning to run a marathon in every country in the world in one year. We will be watching and cheering Dean on. What makes a great athlete is partially science and genetic, but part of what holds us back from our full potential, or at least can unleash it, is our minds. You may not ever run as fast as Dion Leather or Usain Bolt, or run as far as Dean Carnassus, but if you put your mind to it, and you dedicate yourself to training, your future self could achieve things that your couch self right now would consider impossible. Oh. Well, I guess I can't use genetics as an excuse anymore. Just as Dave is realizing, it's hard work. It's dedication. As Dean puts it, it's just about getting out the door, getting started. Yeah, well, sounds like I already did the hardest part. I got off the couch, right? Okay, can I stop running now? Yeah. You're back. Yes, I am back. Are you okay? Ah, I'm feeling good. You look a little bit red in the face. Yes, I'm red. I think I'm, it's, it makes me feel alive, right? You look sound like you're going to die. Uh, no, no, no. I feel good. I feel good. So how far did you go? Um, well, the app says I did 1.6 miles, so that's good. That's like almost a marathon, right? Or at least I can pretend it is. Yeah, it's really close to 26 miles. Yeah, I mean, it feels like 26, so I think I'll, I'll count it as 26 miles. <laughs> Not. <laughs> close enough. Hey, every journey begins with the first step, right? 
Yeah. How do you feel? I'm tired. I'm beat. I feel like I was in a boxing match. Okay, and Dave, we have some people to thank this episode. <sighs> Thanks to Dean Carnassus for making me believe that I don't have any limits. <laughs> And thanks to uh, Dr. Matt Baird for showing me that through science, I do have physical limits. <laughs> thanks also to David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene. And of course, we can't forget Katrona Langtot, who was our German interpreter. Music for this episode was by Dune. You can find them on SoundCloud. This is Dune. Thanks to Dave Mason, Dr. Mel Herbert, and I'm Dr. Jessica Mason. Check out Dean's book, Run. His website is ultramarathonman.com, and he's on Twitter as at Dean Carnassus. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Won't Hurt a Bit Pod, and our website, won'thurtabit.com. So let's stick with this concept of extremes for a little while, and in the next episode, we're going to talk about extreme heat. What happens to a person when they're stranded in the desert? What is heat illness? And if you're desperate for water, well, should you drink your own wee-wee? <laughs> That's all coming up in future episodes. This Won't Hurt a Bit is a production of Fooliboo Incorporated, produced by CeCe Herbert and Bill Connor. The information you hear on This Won't Hurt a Bit should not be taken as actual medical advice. If you have actual medical questions about actual medical things, you should see an actual medical practitioner. Even though we are actually doctors, we're not your actual doctor. So be sensible and keep it real. And this... Oh this. 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 This.